It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Savior would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Savior was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming, silent night into a spectacular night as history was split between Christmas promised and Christmas fulfilled. So it was that in the manger lay the infant Jesus Christ, God's great confirmation of all his promises revealed in the glory of Christmas. Christmas promised and Christmas fulfilled will be the theme of our Sunday morning messages for this week and next. Christmas promised this morning. You and I, at least many of you and I, um, have been around the word of God and the story of Christmas, uh, some of us for years, practically all of our lives. Not all, but many. And there's, a, there's sort of a, a, an occupational hazard that goes with that. That, that some, some astounding things can have become so, so familiar to us that they, they no longer astound as they ought to. And so this morning, I want us, I want us to look again for some of you, some of this may be brand new. For some of you, it may all be pretty familiar. But I want to walk you through the glory of Christmas when seen through the lens of Christmas promised. Now, foundationally, it's important to remember as we, as we look at the things we're going to look at this morning. And I am going to be all over the place in the Bible. So uh, we'll, we'll, the screens will be some help to us, but I'll tell you every time where we're going scripturally so that you can track along. You've got the printed notes there if you, if you picked up a copy or they're available online as that downloadable PDF. But one foundational thing you gotta remember before we, we, we start looking is the, the part of your Bible known as, as the Old Testament, whether your Bible is, is software or a, a, one of various sorts of, of books, you know, paper and leather like mine or a hardback or a paperback, whatever. The part of your Bible that, that is labeled as the Old Testament, that is the, the Bible of, of, of the Jewish nation, stood complete, and this is indisputable, no one, even, even the most secular of, of historians does not dispute this, it stood complete centuries before the birth of Christ. That, that the body of Old Testament scripture and prophecy uh, is not something that got rewritten after Jesus came. So the prophecies we're going to look at this morning in the Old Testament particularly stood as God's word centuries before their fulfillment. And as we look this morning at Christmas promised, we're going to, we're going to take this, this, this moment with this, this little couple in Bethlehem on the, on the course of the first Christmas Eve into Christmas morning see the arrival of their, their baby whom they named Jesus. We're going to take that, that tiny little moment we're going to zoom way far out and way far back to look at Christmas promised. We begin in the Garden of Eden, Roman numeral one. 
The Garden of Eden, the scene is in Genesis 3. We'll be looking specifically in a moment at Genesis 3.15. God had created heaven and earth and all that is in them in six days and rested the seventh day. And the centerpiece of that creation, the, the, the part of that creation that bears the image of God, he created the first man and the first woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden. And there they were given one prohibition, one negative instruction. Do not eat the fruit of a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan enters the garden having, having possessed some sort of serpent and convinces first Eve, then Adam, to violate that one prohibition. And in that moment, creation falls into a state of rebellion against creation's God. Mankind, the centerpiece of that creation, becomes the centerpiece of that rebellion. And the image bearers and all their descendants, including you and I, are now at war with God. You and I are born into that war. And in the immediate aftermath of that, of that fall, the Lord in a pronouncement of a curse upon the serpent makes the Bible's first mention of the coming Savior. It's in Genesis 3.15, contextually, in the immediate context, it's, it's as part of, of God's curse on Satan through the serpent. And he says in 3.15, I will put enmity, that is conflict, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You will, I mean, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Very few people die from a heel wound. Satan, you're going to inflict a wound on him. But in the grand scheme of things, He's going to inflict a far larger wound on you. He's going to crush your head. And so, of all of creation and all of the options of omnipotence, the living God here, right after the entry of sin that makes redemption necessary, announces that his plan of redemption and the ultimate defeat of Satan will be launched through the offspring of a woman. From all of the creative options of omnipotence, he says, look for one who will be a human being born of a woman. Now, I could have brought us any number of places in the, in the New Testament to show the fulfillment of that. I've chosen Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians, it's in your New Testament, chapter four, verses four and five. Paul, writing uh, to the churches of the Roman province of Galatia, there in South Central Asia Minor, writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. From all creation, 
God promises one certain race, the race of mankind. Roman numeral two. From all mankind, one certain nation. Genesis chapter 12. As we work our way through the narrative of the book of Genesis, which is history, now the, the, the incredible worldwide flood has occurred. Through Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, humanity has survived the flood. Humanity had to survive the flood because the Redeemer was coming through humanity. And so humanity survives the flood. After the flood, in, in typical fashion of human beings that are at war with God, mankind, uh, a group decides to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, in, a, in an expression of their pride before a holy God. God uses that occasion to scramble up the nations of mankind by scrambling up the languages and thus scattering mankind by language and, and people group to eventually inhabit regions all over the world. And out of all mankind, God puts his hand on one certain nation. A nation that at, at the moment we join here in Genesis 12, that nation doesn't exist yet. That nation will be the descendants of, of Abraham, here called Abram, same guy. It will be the Jews. And so out of all mankind, God sets his attention and affection on Abram. And I've, I've, I've given you Genesis 12, 3. Let me go back to, to 12, 1. And this is what the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred. This is the origin of the Jewish people. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the people groups of earth are going to encounter a blessing because of what I'm going to do through you. We call this paragraph the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham. It has three components. First, the covenant of the land. You go from your country and your kindred to the land that I will show you. God promised to Abraham the land of Israel. There's a land. Second, there's a promise of legacy. I will make of you a great nation. And third, there's the promise of a coming Lord. Through you, I'm gonna bless every people group on earth. Now you think about that for a moment. The nation of Israel is not statistically that large a nation among mankind. China and India put together are nearly half of mankind. The United States, less than 5% of mankind. Israel, a tiny, tiny blip. And yet God says, out of all creation, I'm gonna redeem through a person. And out of all people, I'm gonna redeem through the nation of Israel. 
Again, so many places I could have shown you in the New Testament what the fulfillment of this begins to look like. I've chosen John chapter four, verse 22. It's, a, it's an offhand statement by Jesus, if Jesus ever says anything offhandedly. Jesus is in a conversation with the woman at the well. We've been in a study of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings here, and if you've been tracking with us in that study, you might remember this conversation. Jesus at the, at the well with the woman in Samaria. And he's speaking to her about some of the distinctions between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. And he says in John 4, 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And it is because out of all mankind, God chose the Jewish people. Then from all of Israel, one certain tribe Back in the book of Genesis, as, you, as we make our way through the book of Genesis, Genesis follows the bloodline of God's covenant from Abraham down to his son Isaac, then down to his son Jacob, and from Jacob to various sons that are the heads of the, the tribes of Israel. The tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel descend from Jacob's sons. And in, in Joseph's case, from Joseph's sons. Joseph is one of the sons. He's the father of two who become heads of the tribes. I'm bogging down. One of those tribes is the tribe of Judah. There are 11 other tribes. We've already come from all of creation into humanity. From all of humanity into Israel. Now, from all of the nation of Israel to one of the tribes. Jacob, as his death approaches, gathers his sons for a last blessing on his sons. And his blessing on his son Judah, which is a blessing on that tribe, is found in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That is, the, the tribe of everlasting rule and dominion will be the tribe of Judah. In Revelation chapter five, verse five, when Jesus in eternity is seated on his eternal throne, John, the book of Revelation, is a look up and forward that John is given and given the privilege of documenting for us. And in heaven is the scene of Revelation 5, verse 5, when one of the elders said to me, that it, me being John, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven Seals. Jesus is descended from the tribe of Judah, but it zooms even tighter. Roman numeral four, from all of Judah, one certain dynasty. You'll recall the, the first king that Israel had didn't come from the tribe of Judah. The first king of Israel was, a, was Saul. But Saul was a judgment on the nation of Israel for their desire to do things in a way that didn't honor God. The leaders of Israel came to God through the prophet and said, we want a king like the unbelieving nations around us have got. 
Has the living God ever taught you a difficult lesson by giving you exactly what you asked for? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Israel been there. I've been there. Some of y'all said amen. Some of y'all been there. You want a king like the pagan nations around you have got? I'm going to let you see what that looks like. And King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was not a blessing on Israel. He was a judgment on Israel. And then God broke that line and set it aside to put in place from the tribe of Judah... King David. And as as David's life went by, and as David was approaching the end of his reign, the prophet Nathan came to David and made him an astounding promise. Now, as we we look at this prophecy, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you need to listen carefully because as sometimes... Sometimes prophecy is like looking at a distant mountain range through a telescope. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the view through the telescope shows you objects that are near and objects that are further away. But as you view them through the telescope, it can be hard to tell in the telescope view what's near and what's far. In this prophecy paragraph I'm about to share with you, Some statements are being made about David's immediate son, Solomon. You can tell which ones they are. Some statements are being made about Jesus's, I mean, David's everlastingly reigning descendant, King Jesus. You tell what those are too. But if you're not clear as you go in that there's a a near character and a far character to this prophecy, as is often the case, it, it can be unduly confusing. But listen now to what the prophet Nathan said to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in in verse 12. The prophet is speaking to the king. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Remember, Solomon did build the first great temple in Jerusalem. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that's not Solomon, that's Jesus. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. Well, Jesus never committed iniquity, so that's Solomon. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's Jesus. That the King of kings and Lord of lords would be from all creation a human being born of a woman. From all humanity, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. From all Israel, one tribe, the tribe of Judah. From all of Judah, one specific bloodline, the bloodline of David. We see that, we see that fulfilled in, in Matthew 12, 23, among, again, many places. In Matthew 12, Jesus has just uh, exorcised a demon and, uh, from a man 
who had been rendered blind and mute by the presence of the demon. Jesus ran the demon out and the crowd said, can this be the son of David? The crowd knew that the Messiah was to be the son of David. And while I admit to you that Matthew 12, 23 asks the question, I would remind you that in the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph given in Matthew, David is one of his ancestors. In the genealogy of Jesus given through Mary in Luke, one of his ancestors is David. In order to be biologically related to David, it has to come through Mary. <laughs> In order to be legally related to David, he has to come through Joseph because that bloodline of kings passes through fathers, biological or adopted. And you all already know that his adopted father, Joseph, is from the family of David because you've already got scripture in your head that tells you that. And Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Right? That's from the book of Luke. So from all creation, mankind, from all mankind, the Jews, from all the Jews, the tribe of Judah, from all the tribe of Judah, the bloodline of David. And I know the cynics among you might be thinking, well, that could still be coincidence. You're pushing the probabilities a little bit, but sure, I'm sure there could be others that would, that would hit all of that. So, Roman numeral five. Let's introduce a coincidence-crushing miracle. Documented centuries before the birth of Jesus. From all impossibilities, a certain miracle the prophet Isaiah is speaking in Isaiah 7:14 to the king Ahaz. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. By the way, that doesn't happen in 2021. It didn't happen at the time Jesus was born and it didn't happen centuries before the birth of Christ when Isaiah said this. The virgin shall conceive makes everybody in the room elbow each other and say, that doesn't happen. That can't happen. That has never happened until the one time it did. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So one who brings God to be with us will be born of a woman who's never been with a man. Now on your printed outline, I gave you Luke 1, 1 through 4, but let me, let me call an audible on that. Come with me to Luke 1, 26 and 27. Luke 1, 26 and 27. This is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. Now in the sixth month, Luke 1, 26, that is the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy, which has just been talked about in the previous paragraph. It doesn't mean the sixth month of the year. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed that is engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And so in the Bible's most microscopic miracle, an impossible single cell event occurs in the womb of Mary. And she is pregnant without ever having been with a man in fulfillment of a quite spectacularly impossible promise God had made centuries before. From all the earth, Romans 6, one certain village. I've got to tell you, this is one of my favorites. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. The place of the Messiah's birth was established in the prophecies of Micah again centuries before Jesus was born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Athra, who are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. One whose coming forth has been ordained from ancient days, whose ruler will come from this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. I love this because Mary and Joseph, when the time approaches for her to give birth, aren't in Bethlehem. They're in Nazareth. Nazareth is, is north in the nation of Israel, up, up, up sort of north and west of the Sea of Galilee. They're in the wrong place. Bethlehem is, is sort of an outer suburb of Jerusalem. Basically a full, at least a full day, maybe two full days hard travel south. They're in the wrong place. You know, God is not only omnipotent in the abstract. He is intentional in the concrete. Amen, Amen because he, he moves. You know, what, you know what God did? The sovereign God who does not have to argue reached down to the emperor of the Roman Empire in his palace in Rome, opened the access panel on the back of that old boy's head, got into the wiring. Caesar, you want there to be an empire-wide census. And Caesar said, I want there to be an empire-wide census. And he thought it was his idea. And I want the entire population of the empire to scramble around to their ancestral city. Caesar said, I, I think it'd be great if everybody went to their ancestral city. And so across the entirety of the Roman Empire, there ensues a massive game of musical chairs and an empire-wide population shuffle. Why? Because Mary and Joseph need to get to Bethlehem. 
Because you see, the living God is extraordinarily intentional. And omnipotence always has options. So let's just slide them down the map a bit because I've already said through Micah where the baby's going to be born. You know this. The fulfillment of this takes place in Luke chapter two, verses one through four. Luke two, verses one through four. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And I have it written out in the margin of my Bible and he thought that was his idea. <laughs> this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. How about that? Now he's in the right place. And the living God, who from all creation ordained that he would save through a certain race. From all mankind, he said in advance, I'm going to do it through a given nation. From that nation, he said, I'm going to do it through a specific tribe. From that tribe, he said, I'm going to do it through a specific family. From that family, he said, I'm going to do it by means of a specific impossible miracle. And in that miracle, I'm going to bring the birth of that child to a particular tiny town that wouldn't even be a decent dot on the map. And if you're still believing all of this is coincidence, I strongly advise you stay away from Vegas. <laughs> they will chew you up and spit you out because there is not this kind of defying of probability. And then one of the sweet last things, there was an old man living in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. Simeon was a ardent follower of the living God. God had made him a promise. Number seven, for one faithful servant, a certain lifetime. Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, that is the, at 40 days of age, a sacrifice celebrating the birth of a boy, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Two big takeaways. Number one, as we have seen in our study in the Gospel of John dealing with the Pharisees, the case for Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord stands up. The, 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 the facts are clear. These fulfilled prophecies of Christmas and time has kept me from, from giving you more. Line up on Jesus of Nazareth centuries, in some cases more than a millennia before his birth. The intellectual case for Jesus Christ as Savior has been made. 
but it will never be enough for those who love their sin and unbelief. You see, the gospel is an invitation. The gospel is an invitation for all who will come to turn from their sin, to turn from their unbelief. Trust Jesus Christ, who was born in the manger of Bethlehem, but who lived, who died on a cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and who is one day returning. And we turn from our sin and follow him by faith as our Lord. And that is the only means whereby our sins are forgiven and our eternal life assured. Yes, the gospel is an invitation, but make no mistake, the gospel is also a confrontation. It is a confrontation for those who love their sin and those who love their unbelief. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Do not attempt to overcome the intellectual case. And your problem is not that you've got intellectual arguments against Jesus that are insurmountable. Your problem is love of sin and love of unbelief. Come to Jesus. And celebrate, take away big idea number two, that the, the living and true God rules at all times with love and all-powerful intentionality. The same God who choreographed Christmas has brought you here today. And you may have thought being here today was your idea. God is more powerful and more loving than that. Come to Jesus in response to what he has shown you in his word today. Agree with me or disagree with me. There's no eternal consequence in that. But come to Jesus and live.